Hi, I'm Anna Soper. Welcome to Teen People, the podcast where I interview people who were in Teen People magazine as young adults. This episode features an interview with Rabbi Andrew Oberstein, who was part of Teen People's Trendspotters program. That itself wasn't a big deal to Rabbi Andrew, but the opportunity it gave him was. As a teenage trendspotter, he interviewed Sandra Bullock for a 2005 issue of Teen People magazine. Before Rabbi Andrew became a rabbi, he was destined for a career on the stage and studied musical theater at Emerson College in Boston. This passion inspired his rabbinic thesis, Welcome to Falsetto Land, the Intersection of Jewish and Queer Identity in Late 20th Century American Theater. Rabbi Andrew spoke with me in January 2022 and told me about the leap of faith that brought him from the pages of Teen People magazine to the rabbinate. I grew up in Los Angeles, and it was actually through, so it was my senior year of high school, 2000, I graduated high school in 2005, and I guess somebody who worked for Teen People magazine had gone to my high school and was still in relationship with uh, my AP Lit teacher, uh, my English teacher in my senior year of high school. Uh, and whenever she needed teenagers to do things, she would reach out to this one teacher at my high school uh, who would sort of source from among the students in her class um, and make recommendations. So I got a call from my high school English teacher saying, do you want to interview Sandra Bullock for Teen People magazine? And needless to say, uh, I said, yes, absolutely I did. It was as easy as that. I didn't even really know. I mean, you know much more about teen people than I do. I, I wasn't a reader of the magazine. I didn't really know what a trend spotter was until my name was written as trend spotter Andrew Oberstein, age 17. Um, and I just thought it would be an amazing opportunity to interview Sandra Bullock. It was very cool. She was doing like a press junket for Miss Congeniality 2 um, at the Four Seasons Hotel in Los Angeles. And I got to go to the hotel and go up to like a penthouse room where there was all this press set up. And it was sort of one of those things where different uh, journalists, different press sort of go one after the other interviewing her. And she sort of stays in this, in this suite all day and gets interviewed by different people. So I waited my turn and then got brought into a room and sat with Sandra Bullock and asked her some questions. They told me to prepare some questions in advance and I did. And then they gave me some questions that they wanted me to ask. And that's that it was a short and sweet day, but it was a really cool experience. And she was lovely. It was, um, you know, I've always been a big fan of, of pop culture and movies. And I've always loved Sandra Bullock. And I, I loved Miss Congeniality One. So I thought, why not take this opportunity to check out what's going on with Miss Congeniality Two? Do you have a copy of this issue of Teen People? You know, I don't think I do, um, which is why when you emailed me, I was so excited to hear from you because I don't know where, I mean, maybe somewhere in my parents' house back in Los Angeles, but I haven't seen it in a very long time. So no, I don't. I, I would love to have a copy though. I wish you had a copy. That sounds very special. Yeah, I do too. 
It was a really special time. I, a couple other of my classmates got to interview. I think someone interviewed Nicole Kidman. Someone interviewed maybe Drew Barrymore. Um, it was a, I don't know. It was it was a really special and fun opportunity that I guess comes from growing up in LA and and just being in the right place at the right time. It was a lot of fun. She had a lot of personality. Um, when you interviewed Sandra Bullock, the first question you asked her was, when did you know you wanted to act? And I know yeah. that you ultimately became an actor. So when did yeah. you know that you wanted to act? Oh my gosh, my whole life. That's all I wanted to do. I grew up, you know, putting on plays in my living room, um, you know, singing songs, dances, putting on costumes, just putting on shows forever. When I was 10 years old, um, a neighbor handed us a flyer for like a local children's drama, after school drama class kind of thing. And the rest was history. I just fell in love with it. Um, it's all I had ever wanted to do. Uh, in high school, I was, you know, doing a lot of theater. And um, that was really my goal for the rest of my life. I never saw myself doing anything else. And I, I went to college and got my undergrad degree in musical theater and um, worked as an actor for a while and and could really never have imagined that my life would turn out any other way, which which of course it did. But yeah, I, I asked that question because I, I wanted you know to follow in her footsteps, not so much in film and television, more in theater, but um, but yeah, that was always the dream. So why did you become a rabbi? <laughs> so what happened? Um, well, I, I graduated from musical theater college. And I went to Emerson College in Boston and got my degree in musical theater. And then I worked as an actor for a while after college. I, I moved back to Los Angeles where I'm from. And then I, I moved to New York and spent some time there. And it was uh, a, my boyfriend at the time, who's now my husband, um, was living in Boston. We met in, in theater school. He was studying acting. And we had been long distance for those two years after I had graduated college. And he didn't want to leave Boston. So I ended up moving back to Boston and started acting around Boston. And so after about five years or so of acting in LA, New York, Boston, different places around, um, I really just started to feel like maybe that wasn't what I wanted to do. Like maybe I was living the dreams of the 17 year old who made the choice to go to musical theater college and that, that I was sort of doing something that I had always wanted to do, but I had to evaluate, is this actually really what I want to do with my life? Do I love the day-to-day -day of this? Uh, the answer was no. There was a lot of about being an actor that wasn't really right for me. I think um, I craved a sense of stability. I craved a sense of, um, you know, I, I really believe that the arts can make a difference. I believe that theater can change people's lives. It changed my life, but not it's you're not always so lucky to be doing the kind of work that you feel is meaningful and significant and changing people's lives and I found myself doing work that I I didn't really believe in that I was just sort of doing because it was a paycheck and that I didn't feel like I was having any kind of impact and and as much as I wanted to be an actor as a kid I also wanted to do something that had some kind of meaning and impact on the world and so I I just felt a little bit like maybe there's something else out there. And uh, around that time, my husband who um, grew up Catholic was in the process of converting to Judaism. And we had been really active in our, in our synagogue uh, in Boston. And uh, he had been taking introduction to Judaism classes and I had taken them with him. 
and sort of seen the rabbis teaching those classes. And I thought, I don't know, there's something about the way these rabbis are teaching. You know, I've, I've always been passionate about my own Judaism and uh, thought that there was meaning to be shared. And, you know, I felt like it was so meaningful for me and maybe I could help other people see why it might be meaningful for them. Um, so I, I, you know, sort of had this inkling in my mind, but the problem was I didn't really know what rabbis did or, or how, you know, what do rabbis do all day? You know, I saw rabbis on Friday night at services, but didn't really have relationships with rabbis to know if that was the kind of job I would want. And then the congregation where we were, where we were attending in Boston had a job opening uh, and the job opening was to run to coordinate a uh, program for people in their 20s and 30s, uh, and also all of the sort of social justice community organizing initiatives, which was really where my heart was. And I thought, well, I don't know, maybe if I take this job and I work here with these rabbis, you know, for a specific rabbi who would be my supervisor, um, I could see what they do all day and see if it's something that I wanted to do with my life. And it was through that job that I saw rabbis, you know, not just preaching and teaching, but going to the state house and fighting for justice and, and sitting in coffee shops, just having one-on-one -on -one conversations with people and, and being there for people at their most important moments, their, their moments of joy and their moments of sadness. And there was just so much there. It was just, it seemed like the richest job, like in, in terms of meaning and purpose. And I just sort of fell in love with the idea that maybe this is what I wanted to do. And so I stopped acting for the very first time ever and worked this job at the synagogue for two years, uh, took Hebrew classes while I was doing that to brush up on my Hebrew. And then after two years of doing the job, applied for rabbinical school. And my rabbinical program was, was five years of learning. I spent a year living in Jerusalem um, and then four years in New York. And then as I was finishing up rabbinical school, I was interning actually at this congregation where I had been uh, a member and where I had been uh, working in this role and where my husband had converted and where we had gotten married. And it was just a really fortuitous uh, situation where when it came time for me to uh, get ordained as a rabbi and start looking for jobs, there, there happened to be an opening uh, at the synagogue where I had been interning. And now I work there. And that's really the, uh, the sort of full circle movement. So we moved back to Boston uh, this past June, and I started working there this past July. And, and now my portfolio is running that 20s and 30s program that really looped me back in in the first place. That's how I ended up here. And, and I haven't acted since 2014. But my husband's still an actor. And so that's what that's what he does. And it's still very much a part of my life because of that. Do you think it was meant to be? Hmm. Maybe. I, yeah, I don't know. It's hard. It's hard to tell. I don't know how I think about things like that. Sometimes I, I think that there was definitely something bigger that called me back to this community. I think that it's just too coincidental. I've just felt this was the community that brought me into the rabbinate. And now to be able to be a rabbi for this same community, um, you know, to work for the rabbi who officiated at my wedding. Yeah, it feels meant to be. 
I have the ability to say what I want to say from the pulpit. And that's an incredible privilege and an incredible responsibility. Uh, so I'm allowed to speak about the issues that are important to me, that are important to the community. I can um, speak as an openly gay man, as a rabbi. Um, I have the ability to, um, to raise the issues that I think are of concern for our, for our community. And I, I work in a community that cares deeply about social justice and, um, and sees justice as uh, a real expression of their Judaism. It sees Judaism as, as calling us in a kind of mandate to, to pursue justice and to make this broken world more whole. It's an incredible privilege, an incredible responsibility. And, and there's so much theater that does that, but not everyone has the privilege to do that. And I do now have the ability to uh, be a part of this work on a daily basis. And our community is, is so deeply involved in so much work to make this world better, to make our community better, to make our city better. And um, I'm just grateful for the opportunity to be a part of that. I read one of your sermons from July of 2020 um, as America was responding to the murder of George Floyd. And you quoted John Lewis's memoir um, and wrote that the past matters tremendously. Yeah. So we seem to be at a point in time where a lot of us are reflecting on the past, um, where we've been and where we're headed. What is it about the past that's significant for you? I mean, it if we pay attention to it, it tells us what our future could be, um, what our future might be if we repeat certain mistakes or if we repeat certain um, you know good choices that we've made in the past, it, it's a guide for us to be able to know where we're headed. Um, there's so much that we, ignore when we when we don't look backwards. Um, you know, of course, we live in the moment and we live moving forwards, but there's so much wisdom to be gained from studying the people who came before us. I mean, they were just human beings. It's not how history is taught in, in schools. I mean, people, it's so dry for so many people. We don't see these people as living, breathing humans with blood pumping through their veins, but of course they were. And you know, they had problems just like us and they navigated similar issues to the ones that we navigate. And so when we study how they responded to trauma, to oppression, to marginalization, it can be an incredible guide for us to be able to, you know, make a different choice or to follow in those footsteps. We can't have the chutzpah, the, the uh, audacity to, you know, think we know better, to think we know everything. There's so much to be learned. Uh, from looking backwards. I read a sermon, and I'm not Jewish, so I can't remember the name of this holy day, but you described it as the lowest point in the Jewish calendar. Tisha B'Av. Yeah, it's the ninth of the Hebrew month of Av. It's, and it's it, the uh, saddest day in the Jewish calendar. And it's a time of mourning. It is. During the, the 2020, you know, in the first year of our pandemic, in the first few months, you wrote this year, it feels a little easier to tap into a sense of despair. This year, we do not have to perform the act of mourning. We are living it and we cry out to God as our nation closely approaches the horrifying milestone of 150,000 people lost to this pandemic. The U US is now around 870,000 people lost to the pandemic. It's horrifying. It's horrifying. I mean, hearing hearing those words um, 
that number sounded so big at the time when I wrote that sermon. Um, and to think of where we are now and to think of the lives that are lost now and the trajectory that we've headed down um, is, is horrifying. It's, it's absolutely horrifying um, to think of what could have been if we, you know, this was preventable. This, this is not how this had to be. Um, and it's not just American lives, it's worldwide lives. And it's so easy to think about COVID-19, you know, in, um, in political terms. I spoke about this on the BIMA last Friday night, I think, I, I, that it's, it's so easy to tell the story of COVID-19 as a story of political division and miscommunication and the CDC and political memes and all of that. And to forget that, that, no, this is actually about people's lives. This is actually about human beings with families and loved ones who are dying um, because of misinformation, because people are selfish, because people are refusing to get vaccinated, because people are refusing to wear masks, because you know people believe lies, because people spread lies. Um, the ramifications mean that people die. And it's it it breaks my heart to mm -hmm. to think about that you know how big that number felt when I wrote that and and where we are today. Yeah, I I noticed as I read that to you, I had my hand on my face, and as you were listening to me, you had your hand on your face, and there's something so exhausting about that. It's so exhausting. Yeah. yeah. Um, in one sermon, you talked about climate grief, and you said. Mm. I'm haunted by democracy grief. And you wrote that before January 6th, 2021. That sermon was my, so in rabbinical school, we give a senior sermon in our last year of school. Uh, and that was a sermon I gave on February 13th, uh, 2020, which was my nephew's first birthday. I remember that because it's a big part of the sermon. Um, and yeah, I, I actually just, we just, so the, Hebrew calendar, we read our Torah uh, in, uh, in a cycle. So we read the entire thing through over the course of one year. And we just recently came across that same Torah portion um, this year, Parshat Yitro, um, the name of the Torah portion. And so I was talking to a friend of mine about this, uh, another rabbi about that Torah portion, and she was reading that sermon. And I think there was some line that she pulled out that said something like, you know, in 2020, uh, even just walking out of our doors uh, outside can feel like a scary thing. I, you know, this was before, uh, this was February, this was before March. And, um, you know, little did I know, little did anybody know what would be coming, but it's a, it's a good reminder for me to have that in writing, that things were, were terrifying before the pandemic, that the, I mean, that's what makes all of this so horrifying is, you know, not to, make this such a sad and depressing interview, but I'll say that, you know, this is uh, something that's been on my mind so much recently that none of the, the issues that we had, none of the terrors and the traumas and the fear uh, that we had before March, 2020 have gone away. They, you know, we've just added on this, this incredibly horrifying global pandemic, but yeah, we were not in a good place in February of 2020. Um, we were terrified for our climate, we were terrified for our democracy. We're still terrified for our climate. And we're still terrified for our democracy, except now we are also uh, terrified to see each other, to hug each other, to kiss each other, to eat with each other. You know, I, I couldn't have known when I, you know, when I left for rabbinical school, it was a very different world. Barack Obama was the president of the United States. It was, it was a very different world. Uh, not to say that things were perfect in any way, but nobody could have known sort of where we've headed now. And, and I think more than ever, you know, we live in such a broken, scary world that 
all we have is is each other and people are craving community and people are craving spiritual and pastoral care and support and guidance and and we can't do it alone that's that's the power of 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 community. I know there's a lot of opposition to organized religion, but I think that what it can provide us in its best form uh, is a sense of community, a sense that we're not alone in any of this, that we look after each other, that you know we live in America, such an individualistic culture. We're so obsessed with with what's good for ourselves and and you know everyone else be damned. And, and that's just not the Jewish way. That's just not how we think about um, our responsibility in Judaism, our responsibility is to each other, our responsibility is to the community. And we don't just get to do whatever we want because we want to do it willy-nilly. We have responsibilities and we have to we have to fulfill them. It's our job to be able to maintain our humanity, but also to, in some ways, um, do what we need to do to push through and be there for people who who look to us and need us, but you know, rabbis are just people. And that's different than in other faith traditions. Like we, we really are just people. There's no sense that a rabbi is closer to God or that I'm any sort of intercessionary between God and humanity. Like I'm just a guy. Rabbis are just teachers. Uh, we're just people who have learned um, about Judaism and are here to serve our communities. So I, I struggle just like anyone else in my community with what's going on in this world. It's hard to turn on the news. It's hard to read the paper. It's hard to, it's hard to process how broken our world is. It's hard to believe. Mm -hmm. And then also the, the very real threats against the Jewish community in the United States and around the world. Yeah, it's very real. Mm -hmm. um, and it's very much on my mind, especially given what just happened in Texas. And, um, you know, all of us are, are vigilant and, and on high alert. I mean, as a Jewish person, I walk through this world knowing that people hate us and that people want to um, commit harm against us. And that is scary. I mean, I'll, I'll say that my family has, um, has asked me multiple times not to wear uh, a kippah, see, I wear on my head um, in public, walking down the street or on the subway or um, in places like that. And there have been times when, when I have felt afraid. You know, when I was living in New York, there were um, a series of attacks uh, on people with publicly Jewish, uh, you know, articles that identified them as publicly Jewish. And um, I always think, well, that could be me, you know, this, this incredible rabbi in Texas, who, um, you know, is the definition of a hero and, and really, um, demonstrated a kind of valor and, and bravery and, and calm and composure and, and just really everything that a rabbi could and should be. Um, I, I can't look at that and see that on the news without thinking like, this could be any of us. This could be any of our friends. It was the same denomination that I'm a part of. It's, it's close to home. And um, yeah, definitely it's on our minds and it's never it's never gone away. I mean, this has been a part of the Jewish story forever. It's not the Jewish story. I think the Jewish story is a story of, of survival and of, of joy and of resilience. And um, it's a beautiful story that I'm proud to be a part of. And unfortunately, it often is told in, you know, the narrative that gets told is the one of, of sadness and death. And that's how we study Judaism. And, you know, that's most people know about the Holocaust. And that's, that's what they think of when we think of the Jews, we think of an oppressed people. And that is our history. But also, God, our, our 
Judaism is so rich and so alive and so um, so joyous. It's, it's such a joyful thing to be Jewish, I think. But we hold two truths at the same time. So much is about recognizing what's within our sphere of control and what's not. Um, I, I, it's something that I deal with personally is recognizing what's within my own sphere of control and what's not and, and not driving myself crazy trying to change things that are without my control, but recognizing that there is actually a fair amount that is within my control in how I relate to the world around me and how I take care of myself and how I take care of others. Um, but yeah, this is a world where, my God, you could wake up tomorrow and anything could be on the news, anything. And none of it would surprise me at this point. God forbid, you know. Uh, in one of your sermons, at one point, you evoke the Israelites' 40 years of wandering, and you write, the road towards true liberation and justice in America cannot wait another 40 years. Yeah. It can't. My God, it can't. It's a real challenge. I mean, that is, um, that's, you know, sort of what I meant by earlier saying that the issues that we had been dealing with before this pandemic have not gone away. People cannot wait to, to experience liberation, to experience freedom, to experience safety and comfort and health. And it's a privilege to be able to wait. It's a privilege to be able to take time and to make slow incremental change. The people who are affected by the problems that we're trying to change can't afford to wait. It's, it's probably the biggest problem that we have today in terms of the discourse around politics of how we make change in our country. Um, it's a luxury to be able to say it'll happen in the next 10 years, 40 years, 50 years. <laughs> I mean, right. I mean, the things yes. that we've been talking about, it's unbelievable. I am a part of the reform movement and throughout my life, the reform movement has been actively and at the forefront of um, supporting the LGBT community. It hasn't always been the history of the reform movement, hasn't been the history of anyone always, but um, at least in my lifetime, at least in my adult lifetime, uh, it really has not been an issue in the eyes of Reform Judaism. I think Reform Judaism deeply emphasizes human dignity, deeply emphasizes the dignity of every human being and the right of every human being to live their authentic lives as their authentic selves. I think we have an attitude toward, um, you know, I'll speak personally and I'll speak for the, for most people within the movement that um, I think we know that the authors of the Torah did not have my relationship with my husband in mind when they wrote the laws that they wrote. I think that um, we have to recognize that they're not talking about the kind of partnership uh, that we have today. And in the reform movement, I think we have the ability to say, we love our tradition, we believe in our tradition, but we need to move our tradition into the future, into the, into the contemporary time. And we know in the movement that love is love. So I've just been grateful to have that as my model. I, I, I didn't grow up in a in a homophobic religious tradition so i i mean it is a part of judaism it is a part of religion in general but it's not a part of my denomination within judaism now i mean that's not to say that there aren't homophobic people a part of every community um but you know the congregation where i work now uh has been performing same-sex marriages since the 1980s um so it's that makes me proud to be a part of that community you know it's i'm i'm not only not the first gay rabbi in this congregation. I'm not even the only gay rabbi 
in this congregation right now. So it's something that I feel really grateful for that that it's such a non-issue that I can stand on the bima um, and and speak about my husband openly, publicly, that I can talk on your podcast as a gay rabbi um, openly and publicly. It's not everyone's experience. And I think that within the Jewish world, there are many people still today who feel like because they're gay, there's no place for them in, in their community. Um, it's heartbreaking. It's not the Judaism that I know. It's not, the, it's not what I see our tradition teaching. That we know the heart of the stranger and we know what it's like to be a stranger. And so we shouldn't oppress the stranger in any way that we know how important partnership is and family is and, and the idea that we push people away uh, because of who they love is just is so dissonant with my understanding of Judaism. We work toward equality and we work toward equity. And that's what's important. I, I think that uh, Reform Judaism has evolved a lot since its inception, but I think the uh, essence of it has remained the same, which is that the core of Judaism um, teaches us how to act ethically in this world, how to be moral, ethical, upstanding people, how to do good, how to walk through this world as a healer, not as a destroyer, how to walk through this world with an attitude of love and kindness and support and, and um mindfulness and awareness and uh and that sometimes within any religion but i think what the reformers saw within judaism was that um we can have the tendency to focus so much on these other issues that we lose the the essence of what we're actually here to do uh you know which is to to partner with god in healing a broken world I recently read Oliver Sacks' book, Gratitude. It was the, the book of essays that he wrote uh, or that was published after his death. And it's a very thin book and it's just very short essays um, that he was working on in his last year or so of, of life. And um, he wrote about going to Israel to go on a kibbutz in his early 20s. And as a young gay man, this was in the 1960s, he felt very unwelcome and vowed he would not go back to Israel. And it was only by accident that he did go back to Israel because he, at the end of the essay, he, he revealed that he sort of spontaneously accepted an invitation from a family member who was having their hundredth birthday. So he mm. said, yes, of course I'll come. And then he realized, oh, uh, I'm breaking this promise that I made to myself for all these decades to never go back to Israel. Mm. And I, re I realized as I, I read that there's like, you know, there's a lot of energy that we carry when we when we don't feel welcome. Mm. Yeah. And I mean, Jews know what it's like to not feel welcome. That's been our story. Uh, so it's sad. It, it, it makes me sad. It breaks my heart to, to hear that, you know, gay Jews to know that gay Jews have that experience of of not feeling um like they are welcome on the inside, like we live on the outskirts of, of the Jewish world. Um, again, that's not my experience in the reform movement, but it is the experience of, of many people. Um, and, and it's horrifying. I mean, the, going back to your earlier question about why it's important to look at the past, here is a perfect example of why it's important to look at the past. This is why it's important for us as Jews to know our history um, of never being 
never being seen as as part of it, always being seen as an other, always being othered. Um, and then when we learn that, when we internalize that, it becomes an imperative for us not to do that to others, not to do that to each other. So, you know, the fact that that still happens within the LGBT community um, to this day is, is just, it, it breaks my heart. And, and it makes me want to just let people know that you don't have to choose between being Jewish and being gay, that there are Jewish communities um, where, where we celebrate you, where we lift you up, where we welcome you for everything that you are, for all gender identities, all sexual orientations. But people don't know that. People do have to, people feel like they do have to choose between being a religious person and, and the tradition that they love and that they grew up with and living authentically as themselves. And, and I think that that's, that's just heartbreaking. It's just heartbreaking. Mm. I think you have a book in you. I think reading oh. your sermons, you are a very um, energized and energizing writer. I appreciate that. Maybe one day. <laughs> Maybe one day. I do love to write, and um, and sermons are are a way that I feel like I can, like I can express myself. Like I can say the words. I I spent a lot of time as an actor saying other people's words, and I think that part of becoming a rabbi was realizing. I think I also have things to say. I think I also have have ideas and, and things that I want to get out there in the world. And, and I, I loved saying other people's words. I, I loved being an actor, but, but now um, I'm, I'm grateful for a platform. You've mentioned God a few times in our conversation. What does God mean to you? Yeah, it's so, um, it's such a loaded word, right? It's such a loaded word. It's such a scary word, I think, for so many people, because I think it's so hard to separate um, a couple things. One is separate this notion of sort of a bearded man in the sky who, you know, throws thunderbolts down or lightning bolts down um, at people when they do bad things or gives you candy when you do good things. I think it's also so hard to reconcile this notion that there could be God when there is so much suffering in this world. And if there is God, then why doesn't God intervene? And, and I think it was helpful for me um, to sort of separate the God character from the Hebrew Bible, um, you know, who, who I study. I, 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 um, I think that our texts are, are sacred and, and divinely inspired, but, but I, when I pray to God, I'm not necessarily praying to the character that I'm reading about in the, in the Bible. And I think it's possible to believe um, in, in God um, without having um, a belief that God has the ability or uh, or that God intercedes in our lives um, and, and rewards us for doing good things and punishes us for doing bad things. I think empirically, that's not true. That does not happen. Like, I think if that kind of theology is dangerous and scary, when I think about God, um, I use that word because that's the word that we use, but it's, it's for me, um, you know, less of a, of a sort of conscious being that intervenes in our lives uh, and more uh, an energy that, you know, when I think about the Hebrew word for God, uh, there's a teaching that the Hebrew name of God, we don't say, uh, the letters that spell out God's names are the letters Yud, He, Vav, and He. We don't, 
pronounce that. It's an unpronounceable name. And we have sort of euphemisms that we say when we come across that name and when we read it. Um, but within that, that sort of phrase, that yud heh vav hey that makes up God's name, those are the letters that we use to, to spell out the Hebrew words for uh, was, is, and will be. Hayah, So that's why sometimes we translate God's name as the eternal. To me, that's God. This summation, this energy of everything that was, this totality of what was, what is, and what will be, um, that creative power of the universe that is everything that has existed, that's that's God for me. It's 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 the kind of God that makes it impossible to say you don't believe in God because you know, and one of my mentors when when I you know, says when when people ask that question, they say, well, tell me more about the God that you don't believe in. Um, because the kind of God that I'm talking about is is really not something that you can believe in or not believe in. It just is. There is a kind of eternal energy that exists in this universe that we can tap into a kind of, uh, I believe, uh, a kind of goodness, a kind of light. Um, and and when darkness happens, when brokenness happens, in my mind, it's it's an absence of that. It's a disconnect from that. Um, so much of Jewish tradition uh, helps us to connect to that energy, to connect to that light, to bring that into our lives. It's not that if we follow the commandments, God rewards us. If we don't follow the commandments, God punishes us. But in my mind, that the commandments um, are a path for us to live a righteous life, to connect to that goodness, to connect to that to that which is eternal, to that yud heh vav heh, uh, rather than to connect to that which is material and fleeting and and an illusion and just sort of what we think we worship, right? What God is is the opposite of these these idols, and I don't mean idols like you know physical statues of gods, but these other things that we worship as a culture. When I talk about sort of shifting our energy toward God, I think about shifting our energy toward, you know, that which is forever, that which is real and and connects us. Um, what permeates the entire universe and was here before the world and will be here after the world. Um, that sense of eternity is really integral to my conception of God. But I know that when I use the word, people people jump back because they're not sure what I mean. And I do think it's important to talk about God. I think it's important to talk about that energy and that eternality and, and that goodness, that light, because we can, we can tap into that. And there are tools that our tradition gives us to, to tap into that and to make our lives better. And it strikes me that in the Hebrew name for God, there's that reference to the past again, leading us to the present, which brings us to the future all connected. These are the conversations that I love having with people. These are the things that I love thinking about and talking about and helping people think through. Um, because I think this, you know, what is any of this, if, if not to bring people meaning and purpose in their lives? And, and, and this is what does it. Could you have imagined your teenage self um, having this career path for yourself and this way of life for yourself? No, no. I mean, may I mean now that I, when I look back, the signs are there. I think it makes sense. I think a lot of my passions and a lot of my my skill sets and a lot of the the things that I have been drawn to, like looking back, 
it makes a lot of sense. I think I, I grew up at a, at a Jewish summer camp. I tell this story sometimes. I, I grew up at a Jewish summer camp and we had prayer uh, once a day and, and in this chapel outdoors. And, and I remember uh, like stealing the prayer book from the chapel and bringing it back to my cabin to like read it through in my cabin. And like, that was not something that the other kids did. Like I really loved the spiritual aspect of Jewish life from a young age. And, and I think it makes sense that I'm, that I'm in this field, but I couldn't have imagined myself doing anything other than acting. And I used that language for a long time throughout high school, throughout college. Um, you know, I can't see myself doing anything but acting that I think I was so dead set on that. And for me, a lot of that was, you know, we have this message out in the world, like, never give up on your dreams, right? Never give up on your dreams. And I think sometimes that is empowering, but sometimes that's actually really limiting because our dreams change and our dreams evolve and we evolve. And then you find yourself, you know, doing something for a lot longer than you should be because you don't want to betray your 15 year old self. But I'm not my 15-year-old self. So um, I think it's okay for dreams to evolve. And I was scared for a long time to, to, you know, what would it be like if someone asked me, what do you do for a living? And I said anything other than I'm an actor. Um, I didn't want to be in that situation. I, I thought it was a failure to, to sort of give up on my dreams. Um, and it was a process for me to reconcile that and to move on, to do something different. So no, I, my high school self would not recognize uh, the rabbinate as a possibility for my future, but I think people around me might have recognized that it could have been a possibility. Uh, I don't think my family was surprised. I mean, maybe they were surprised because they had always thought I wanted to be an actor and I did always want to be an actor, but I think it makes a lot of sense. Uh, and you never know when you're in high school where your life is going to lead. And this was, this was not where I thought I was headed when I sat down with Sandra Bullock to ask her about being an actress. <laughs> or what, the question about what it was like to be a cheerleader in high school, they told me to ask that. I remember I had asked that she had just given, I think like a million dollars to some kind of disaster relief. And I asked her, I remember asking her about that. And then teen people saying something like, I also asked her about what it was like to be a cheerleader in high school. And of course that's what made it into the magazine. <laughs> If I may be so bold, not being Jewish and not being gay, but I can see how there might be some parallels between a young person's coming out journey to everything that you've just described about realizing like you were taking the prayer book back to your cabin. You know, other mm. kids weren't doing that. I wonder if there's a, a sort of a, a parallel there. Mm. I mean, of course, any kind of openness with our identities and, and who we are on the inside. And it wasn't cool to like this stuff. And I mean, it was, it was cool to talk about how lame Hebrew school is and, and how much you, you know, couldn't wait for services to end so you could go play basketball or do whatever you wanted to do. And, and I really loved it. I really, um, I loved being Jewish. I loved, the prayer aspect of it and the spiritual aspect of it. And I loved the Torah and I, I think it was embarrassing to admit that. And, and um, 
and now I now I have no choice but to admit it because I'm a rabbi. But um, yeah, it's it's coming to terms with with who I actually am and what I actually love and who I actually love and and living my life publicly, authentically. That's that is the journey that I think so many of us go down is how we live public, authentic lives. I, I think I'm at a place now where I'm able to do that, which feels really good. I don't think I was able to, I wasn't out in high school. You know, I came out right at the end of high school. When, when I did that interview with Sandra Bullock in, 20, in 2005, I you know, was maybe out to a couple people, not everybody, not at school, not to uh, my whole family. Um, I, I wasn't living a public authentic life. And, and, and now I, I feel good about the fact that I can say I am. What advice would you give your teenage self today? Hmm. What a good question. I think probably um, you can't please everybody. Not everyone is going to like you and you're going to waste so much energy trying to be the golden child for everyone. Um, the things that make me unique and different are to be celebrated, not to be sort of hidden. I think that's a lifelong lesson for adults too. Um, I think that's what that's what's scary about coming out is you don't want to disappoint people. You don't want people to hate you. You don't want people to dislike you. You don't want people to think you are, you know, whatever they think about gay people, whatever it is that, um, there's so much fear about disappointing people, um, about not being, not fitting into people's expectations of who you are and what you should be doing. And, you know, to not give that much energy toward that because it's futile. We've covered everything in this conversation, haven't we? We have. This is a nice <laughs> conversation. A lot to unpack. Yeah. Thank you for, um, for your questions and for your interest and, and for following up with people, you know, later in life when you emailed me, it was just such an interesting idea to see where people are in their lives and where people have ended up. And, you know, this is not where I thought I would end up. And I know for the other people who you interview, it's, it's, it's a similar situation. People don't find themselves necessarily where we thought we would be at 16, 17. Um, so grateful that you're doing this work and that you're checking back in with us. Thank you. Well, I think there's a lesson in there. We should look at ourselves now as people in our mid-30s and say to ourselves, let's not assume we know where we're going to be when we're 50 or 60 or 70. Yeah, anything's possible. I, I know I'll always be a rabbi. It's, that's, I, I, have, I was ordained as a rabbi, so that's always going to be. But um, I don't know what my life is going to be like down the road. And, and you take it a day at a time. What's the most outrageous thing Sandra Bullock's ever done for a film role? What advice would she give her teenage self? And why did she become a cheerleader? Find the full text of Rabbi Andrew's interview with Sandra Bullock on my Twitter and Instagram, at teenpeoplepod, and on my Tumblr, teenpeoplepod.tumblr.com. 
Like Rabbi Andrew, I can see in my own life a career path that's unlike anything I had planned for myself at the age of 15. I didn't plan on becoming a librarian, and I would never have thought I'd be making a podcast, let alone a podcast about Teen People magazine. I would love to hear your thoughts on this project, so please connect with me on social media or write a review on your favorite podcast app. I'm Anna Soper, and I'll be back next week with another edition of Teen People Podcast. Thank you.